plenty of people are willing to say that Jesus was a good moral teacher. They think he was a good guy. Maybe he was some kind of guru. He had some truth to follow, something to learn from, but he wasn't everything that the Christians say he is. Or was he? That's what we're going to talk about today. My name is Stephen Cram, and this is My Apologies. An apology doesn't just mean saying that you're sorry. An apology can also mean giving a reason for something that you believe. For example, if I ask you why you think The Office is better than Parks and Rec, I'm asking for an apology. On this channel, we'll be looking at reasons or apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. And if I say something that offends you, my apologies. Today, we're discussing a topic that was actually brought up in episode 10 of this Mere Christianity series, the one where my wife and I went back and forth and dialogued about various, our, basically our top 10 list of C.S. Lewis quotes. And this is one of those. It's the classic Lewis trilemma, where he says Jesus must be either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And so we're going to dive into that question. We're going to look at that passage and then kind of parse out the details. What does he mean by that? And is it a very good argument for the identity of the historical Jesus. This can be found, this quote is in Mere Christianity, book two, chapter three. And so that's where we're actually going to start out by reading the passage or a good portion of the passage that is in question. There in book two, chapter three, Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So if we notice from this quote, the first thing is that a lot of people look at this argument and think that this is supposed to be this all-encompassing argument for who Jesus is. And that's not exactly the case. If we look at who Lewis is speaking to here, he's speaking specifically to the person who would feel compelled to make the argument that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, just a guru. And that is who this argument is specifically for. If you deny altogether that Jesus was a person, if you think that he is historical fiction, or that the people who followed him lied about what he said, well, then this argument isn't very compelling for you at all. And that's understood by Lewis. That's not what he's trying to address. This is only supposed to compel the person who thinks themselves often spiritual and sees Jesus as a good moral teacher and one of the many options to be chosen from. We could explain this a little bit better with a chart that I've made, and we're going to use the example of Elvis. And let's say I was writing a paper, and I say in my paper that Elvis claimed that whenever he was young, he was a firefighter. Either that's true, that he claimed he was a firefighter, or it's not true. He did never claim he was a firefighter. If he didn't claim he was a firefighter, that's easy. It's obviously not true. He never said it. It never happened. That one's done. But if he did claim to be a firefighter, like I'm saying, well, then we have a further thing to look at. Was he actually a firefighter? If he was telling the truth, again, straightforward. We know he claimed he was a firefighter. We know he, in fact, was a firefighter. And so we're done. We found a true fact about Elvis. But if he's lying, you either have that he was a liar or that he was crazy right? He either intentionally is telling you a false statement that he was a firefighter, or he was unintentionally. And if you're unintentionally telling someone the truth, you could say, I was deceived or kind of crazy. You're making something up. So those are the options we have here. Either he never claimed it, he did claim it, and it's true, or he did claim it, and he's a liar or 
deceived in some way. We have the same thing when we look at Jesus. So if we look at the claims made of Jesus in scripture and history, what we know about him, you have two options. In this example, we have the claim that he is God, right? Either he claimed that or he didn't claim that. If he didn't claim that, easy, into discussion. But if he did claim that, we need to look in a little bit further into the truth of the matter. Is he actually God or is he not actually God? If he's actually God, we'll leave that alone for a minute. If he's not actually God, what would be the reasons he would say, I am God? Same kind of things. Either he's a liar, either he's intentionally deceiving, or he's unintentionally deceiving you. And with a claim like being God, it's fair to call him somewhat of a lunatic if he's telling you that he, uh, if he's unintentionally lying to you about being God. So, this is how we get the arguments of liar, lunatic, and lord. Some people have, have added there at the top that box of legend saying that either he is a legendary figure himself or his claims are legendary and he never actually said he was God. So we're going to first look at that legend segment because that's something that's really common in today's conversation on the matter. And then after we look at legend, then we'll look at the classic Lewis trilemma of liar, lunatic, and Lord that you can see on the screen there. That is if you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on podcast, you'll just have to keep up with the sound of my voice. But we continue. Like I said, we're going to start out by looking at that legend bit before we get to the liar, lunatic, Lord piece. And this is something that's commonly heard, maybe if you listen to atheists debating Christians online. And this is the idea that essentially, for one reason or another, Jesus is a legendary figure. Among those people who make that argument, they typically say either that he never existed at all, which isn't honestly as common, or more commonly, that he never actually called himself God or made any of these divine claims that the authors of the scriptures claim he made. To the accusation that he never existed, there is good evidence to the contrary. One, you have a ton of early Christian writings of those who follow Jesus, and they all ascribe this deity identity to Christ. They all say that he was God. But if you're an atheist, Christians writing about Jesus, even old Christians, close to the time of Jesus, that might not be the most compelling thing for you. So we want to also look at a quick list of non-Christian writers, those who were pagans or Jews who would have been enemies of Christians writing about Jesus near to the time of Christ. And so here we have just a quick list of references. Uh, These are all people who mentioned Jesus early, shortly after his death. When the church was still new, it was still growing, a very small number of believers, of people who followed Jesus at the time. But all of these people, again, either Romans who weren't fans of Christians or Jews who weren't fans of Christians, lots of people not a fan of the Christian faith, uh, but all of these people talked about Jesus as a historical figure. A lot of these just talk about Jesus, the fact that he lived in the area of Judea, that he was crucified under a man named Pontius Pilate. They actually get pretty specific as to the details of this pivotal moment in Jesus's life. And these are all, again, non-Christians. So this is really why, historically, most people don't try to make the argument that Jesus wasn't a real person. It's pretty obvious from this evidence, he at the very least was a person who existed and was very influential. But that's why you get the other argument that maybe he existed, but the things that are said about him, specifically in reference to him being a deity or God, that's all just legendary. That was added later on. One of the biggest proponents of this idea that you'll hear online is a man named Bart Ehrman. I think I said that right. Ehrman, Ehrman. I'm not entirely sure. I've listened to him debate, but I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name. Oops. Anyway, he is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, and he's really prominent in this conversation about the historical Jesus from the point of view of someone who doesn't believe he was ever God 
during his lifetime, that that was something he was added later on. One of the primary arguments that he'll actually use is that the earlier gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't ever mention the deity of Christ. They just see him as a good moral teacher. And so we're going to look at that quote and see how he describes this. He says, It was a view that almost certainly developed within the Johannine community. And the ultimate payoff is that this view of the fourth gospel, being the gospel of John, is not the view of the historical Jesus himself. It is a later view put on his lips by the author of John or his sources. So I can't go through all of the gospels, but what I can do is take the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark, which is it may not have been the earliest gospel, but by most modern historians, they say that one was probably written first. The other option would have been Matthew. Some people historically thought Matthew was written first, thus Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being the order of the gospels. But in modern days, they say Mark. So let's take a look at Mark and see, was Jesus actually shown to be divine in the text of the earliest gospel? And if he was referenced as a divine figure in the earliest gospel, then this argument of Bar Ehrman, that that was a theology developed by John's specific community with in early Christianity, and thus it's in John's gospel, then that argument gets blown out of the water. It's there from the beginning. Of course, now I mean, I kind of give it away, but that's my argument. I, I, think, I think genuinely it is there from the beginning. And what we miss is that we're reading the gospels 2,000 years later, right? So if I was to big on biographies today. If I was to write a biography and uh, about Michael Jordan, and the first line of the biography is something along the lines of, Michael Jordan was the best athlete of his era, the very top guy. He won six NBA championships playing for the Chicago Bulls. Well, if you're listening to that or you're reading that now in modern days, you would know automatically, oh, he's a basketball player. You probably know this from history. You may recognize the Chicago Bulls or the acronym NBA. I never said that he was a basketball player. I just said he was an athlete. But it doesn't take much with the context you know to understand what I'm saying. But if you fast forward 2,000 years and someone is reading that one line of script that I give, they might not have any idea that he was a basketball player. They might think he played some other sport. They might be looking into his baseball career and think it applies to them because they don't live in the context in which we live. They don't have those immediate references that come to mind of NBA, Chicago Bulls. They don't understand the context, and so they miss out on something that's obvious to us. And that's what happens with the Gospels. A man named Dr. James White, who is a Christian apologist, in a debate with Shabir Ali, who is a Muslim apologist, he actually offered 16 examples of Jesus being referenced as divine in the book of Mark. I can leave a hyperlink in the show notes that gives you all of those options. It gives you all of those references, but today we're just going to look at two quick ones, two that I think are really compelling for me personally. So first, we're going to look at Mark 1-3, very, very early in the book of Mark, the third verse of the first chapter, which says, the voice, and this is speaking of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So in this verse, in the context, John the Baptist is calling himself the one who is preparing the way for the Lord. And in the context, this is clearly Jesus. He's talking about him doing baptisms, preparing the hearts of the people for Jesus, the Messiah, to come and complete his work. And if you read this today, you see the word Lord, you've heard people call Jesus Lord Jesus. And so you just assume, ah, that's easy. It's clearly Jesus, not a big deal, not necessarily God. But what you may not know right off the bat is that he's referencing the book of Isaiah. And in that book, the word Lord there, I mean, obviously it's not written in English, but the word Lord there is specifically Yahweh. 
the covenant God of Israel. This isn't just the general word for God or a God or king or Lord, as we might use it now. It's specifically the tetragrammaton, the specific word for God that the Jewish people use to refer to their one individual God. That's whose way is being prepared for. That's who John is saying, I'm preparing the way for. And who is this person? Jesus. And so he's quoting a passage that references the covenant God of Israel, the one and only, and using it to apply it to Jesus. And this is right off the bat in Mark. Obviously, we don't know that. We don't speak Hebrew unless you're a scholar or you've done the studying yourself. But for people at the time, they would have known Isaiah. They knew the original languages. And so the reference was not missed on them. So that's one. The second one we see here, I'll go ahead and read it for us. This is Mark 14, verses 61 to 64. This is a little bit later in the book. And it says, but he remained silent and made no answer. This is Jesus being before his crucifixion. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. So the most obvious thing about this is that the high priest calls it blasphemy. So clearly there's something going on here. He's not just saying like, yeah, I'm a good guy. There's something else going on. He's attributing deity to himself in some way. But again, another thing that's missed on us often, but would have been understand by, understood by the high priest and other Jews at the time, is that son of man and this imagery of him seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven, that's all divine imagery taken out of the book of Daniel. So this is why the high priest freaks out and says, blasphemy. So these are just two quick examples. Like I said, I'll leave a hyperlink. There's 16 examples just in the book of Mark. And so the whole argument that Bart Ehrman has, that these ascriptions of deity to Jesus don't exist until the book of John, it's simply not true. John presents them in the most overt and theologically deep way, but they exist in all of the gospels. And a lot of the letters of Paul and Peter and those letters that were written even before the gospel of John was written. So you see it from the earliest days of Christianity, extending from then until now. It's a consistent thing that Jesus is, at least he claimed to be God. Lewis himself, actually in this chapter, addresses another way we can tell that Jesus is calling himself God, and that is in the area of forgiveness. I'll read the passage and then I'll explain it. So he says, One part of the claim of Jesus tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on, untrodden, good word, who announced that he forgave you for the treading on other man's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. So what Lewis is saying here is that Jesus forgives sins as if those sins were committed against him. And to see an example of how silly this is, imagine if I am hanging out with my friend Tom and he punches me in the face, just outright, 
punches me right in the face, knocks me over. And then he turns, instead of turning to me, he turns to my friend Jared and says, Jared, I'm so sorry that I just hit Steven in the face. And Jared says, you're forgiven, Tom. How stupid is that? I'm on the ground and I'm saying, ask me for forgiveness. You just hit me. What right does Jared have to forgive you? That's how silly it would be. But if Tom looks to God, who is the chief person who says, this is my moral law. If you sin against the moral law, you're sinning against what I've told you to do. And he says, God, please forgive me for hitting Stephen. That is a different conversation entirely. And so Jesus is walking around forgiving people's sins, which is something that only makes sense if he's God. So Lewis points this out as something, like he said, that's often overlooked because we're so used to hearing it, we kind of take it for granted instead of realizing how preposterous it would be for Jesus to claim that he forgives sins if he's not actually God. And that is something, incidentally, in the Gospels that you see as something that riles up the Pharisees and the Jewish teachers at the time. They don't love the fact that he claims to forgive sins. Finally, as we look at the idea that Jesus was just a legend, we have to ask the question, could he have meant that he was just a God or a deity of some sort and not Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel? Now, we've already mentioned that in Mark, that's clearly not the case, but Lewis has some further things to say on the matter that I think are really interesting. So I want to look at that as well. He says, then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there are suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God and claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now, let us get this clear. Among pantheists, like the Indians, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God, in their language, meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. And this is a really interesting thing to point out, that had Jesus come in any other context, had he been born as a Roman, as a Norse man, someone who believed in Zeus and things like that, someone from India, someone from China, any of these other religions, and he claimed to be God, the word God in that context, they didn't have this monotheistic frame. But rather, Jesus appeared in the single, only monotheistic religion in the whole world at the time, and there claimed that he was deity, that he was God. And so it couldn't be that he was just claiming to be a part of God or something like that. He didn't use those words. He claimed to be the divine covenant God of Israel. So now that we've covered the legend portion, let's look at the other three, the liar, lord, and lunatic, which is Lewis's trilemma. At this point, we can probably concede that he was a real historical figure, and he probably did claim to be divine based on what was written about him. So now we're looking at if he claimed to be divine, is that a legitimate claim? Is that true? Or is he lying or deceived in some way? Your two options, if he isn't the Lord of all, if he isn't God, is that he either knowingly deceived everyone or he unknowingly deceived everyone. Was he knowingly deceiving others? If so, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. If that's the case, if he's lying about that one thing, you should rightly discount everything he says. You shouldn't call him a good teacher about anything. For example, if I have a buddy who says he's a great mechanic and I take my car to him and then I get there and find out he knows nothing about cars at all, well, I'm going to take that car right back. I'm not going to trust him. He's lied about being a mechanic. Why would I trust him for all the things the mechanic is supposed to do? If Jesus lies about being God, why would you trust him on areas of morality, of faith, of virtue, which are all things that come from God? 
he's lying on the foundational truth. He wouldn't be a good moral teacher in any of the things that come out of that foundational truth. You should discount him entirely, right? So if he's a liar, not a good moral teacher. But what if he was unknowingly deceiving others? Well, imagine walking down the street in the middle of a city and someone comes up to you and claims to be God Almighty. Would you drop everything and follow him? Well, if you thought he actually was Lord, maybe you would. But in general, we're going to look at that person and think, that's a crazy person. You're probably going to try to say nice things and slink away slowly, trying not to get stabbed. You think he's a little bit crazy. And in that case, he's also not a good moral teacher. You wouldn't trust a crazy person as a good moral teacher. To expand on this, there's a really good quote by a man named Philip Schaff, who wrote the history of the Christian church. And he says, going so far in admitting the human perfection of Christ, and how can the historian do otherwise? We are driven a step farther to the acknowledgement of his amazing claims, which must either be true or else destroy all foundation for admiration and reverence in which he is universally held. It is impossible to construct a life of Christ without admitting its supernatural and miraculous character. I love this quote from Schaff because he really reiterates what Lewis is saying, especially with his line where he says it must either be true or destroy all foundation for admiration and reverence, right? So either his claims are all true and he's God, or there is no foundation for thinking him good or moral or a teacher worthy of listening to. So what are the options? You can say he was just a legend. But the historical evidence, the textual evidence doesn't really support that. And we discussed that first. Then you, you can say he's a liar, but then you shouldn't say he's any kind of good teacher. You can say he was crazy, but again, not a good teacher. And then the fourth and final option, the one that I take and the one I hope you take, is that he was Lord of all. That he is, in his very nature, God. Jesus Christ was God. Those are the only four options. Those are the ones that you can rightly choose from if you want to. But saying that he was just a moral teacher just a good guy. It's not an option that you have available to you. And to wrap this up, I want to read just one more time the quote from C.S. Lewis that we looked at at the beginning. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. If you enjoyed this episode, please like the video and subscribe. Feel free to share this content with friends or someone you think might enjoy it and leave a comment. You can also reach out to me on Twitter or on Locals, which is kind of like Patreon. Until next time, my name is Stephen Cram and this has been My Apologies. Apologies.